Yo, grab a sage. It's a safe space. We Let's make space so you can take space. space. Everybody bring their best self. It's, It's a safe space. space. Anybody make space so you can take space. She a story. I'll hold the space for you. She a story. I'm listening. I'll take it and I'll take it and I'm listening. I'll hold the space for you. It's a safe She space. Story. We make space so you can take space. This is just healing. A new podcast from Men Healing where we'll be talking frankly about men and sexual trauma. We'll be taking a deep dive into the diverse range of perspectives and personal stories about the social and cultural factors that impact healing for male survivors. Sexual trauma does not exist in a bubble. Healing shouldn't either. Let's examine and discuss those intersectional ways that trauma and healing are impacted by racial and gender identities, socioeconomic status, oppression, and white supremacy. Let's listen, let's learn, let's heal. Before you share your story, let me tell you who I am. Yo, my name is Corey, and speaking truth ain't always easy, but you gotta own it. And unaddressed pain, we can't condone it, cause we done healed from painful moments. That trauma, we pick a bone with, too much for us to sit alone with. And I ain't perfect, but certain that what we doing is working. I'm just asking, how you healing if others is hurting? Share your story. All right. Greetings, 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 brother. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for uh, agreeing to to be a part of the the Just Healing podcast podcast that's being sponsored by Men Healing, and Men Healing is an organization that has been doing work for about thirty years um, to support male survivors of sexual harm. I'll start by saying, like, really, like, how much you mean to me and how important you've been in my life as an elder, as a father figure, as a friend, as a brother, as a spiritual guide. I refer to you as a spirit, my spiritual guide. You don't know that, but I always okay. say that to the point where I say, Walter, they'd be like, oh, you're a spiritual guide? Because you are definitely a mystic. You have the rapport with the divine and ways that, you know, opens you up as a portal to express things that can come from places that other folks are not able to tap into. And so every time that I talk to you, I always get access to that. And it's so critical for my development. And I'm so grateful for you. And so I know a lot about you, but I wanted to ask you to tell the audience, tell everyone, you know, who is Walter Simpkins? Well, you know, that's a, uh, a very interesting question because I've been asking myself that for um, seven decades or more, let me say that. The reality of it is, is that, you know, I'm a product of uh, growing up on the Lower East Side, all right, in terms of Alphabet City in New York and being a project child. Mm -hmm. So the project, and projects have a, a particular mentality and each project has its own energy. So I was from the Lillian Wall Project, but it gave us, because we were down on the Lower East Side, it gave us access to a lot of other communities like Jewish, Chinese, Italian, big Hispanic populations. And then it also, because we weren't far from Greenwich Village, it gave us also access to that whole creative energy community that really expanded us on another level in terms of what we saw and what we felt was part of 
whatever was going on in the world. You know, so that Greenwich Village was a whole nother uh, uh, mix down there. But what happened is that my life has taken many, many turns in terms of who I am or who I thought I was as opposed to who I became. And so in that, growing up in the projects and whatnot, there are many experiences that you have there. But in, in, in that world, it's a kind of a silent world where you don't tell people actually what has happened to you. You hold that because you don't want them to put a label of shamingness on you. So growing up in that, it caused me to look at the world from a different, a particular lens. And then also too, you know, I, um, I got married very young. I was 19. She was 18. I was in City College in New York. She was in Manhattan Community College. And we were two people that wanted to get out the projects. And we couldn't leave from our parents' house unless we were married, okay? Mm -hmm. And most of the time, you only got out of there not because you got married, but because pregnancy forced the marriages because at that time, that's what happened. And so we were able to escape that part of it, but we were able to go out and begin to build another life. And in that life, we started to create our own world and how that life then took on different aspects in terms of relationships and how those relationships or that particular relationship when it started to go south, the impact that it started to have, especially on myself. Now, whatever she might have been going through, that was her. But before that, I had been a Wall Street banker and I was talking a lot of black stuff and they decided to get rid of me. Okay. So we had a four month old baby at home, but she was a registered nurse. So she went back to nursing and I stayed home and started raising my daughter. And I'm going to tell you something. I've been into many universities and I've been around a lot of educated people. Or what I learned watching that little girl growing up surpassed any knowledge that came from any books or opinions or anything else. And I started to see the world as it evolves from a level of what she's exposed to and then what she's allowed to come up in her own understanding of who she is in the world, but how my stuff affected me. First of all, it started to give me, I, I wound up in the world of depression. And my God, depression wreaked havoc on my life. And it was undiagnosed. I was undiagnosed with depression for about 20 years. So of course, what I did is I self-medicated so that I could keep my own balance. And uh, the thing is that how these things took their they are uh, told on me over time and the places that they led me and the things that I began to do because of it in this process and stuff like that. When I broke up and stuff like that, I took my daughter with me. Okay. And I was raising my daughter for quite some time until one day I realized my daughter needed a mother. Okay. I was living in a world. I was working at the East Cultural Institution. 
and in those processes or being with me brought her around a lot of men. And I started to feel that this young lady did not need to be raised around all these men. And she needed a mother to help her to have the balance that she's needed. That also took me to an understanding about being a mother and a father. I could be a father plus, but I could never be a mother. And I always hooked on to that concept because I really get aggravated with that urban myth that somebody, oh, I had to be a mother and a father to him and all that, you know? No, you were a mother plus, but you could never be the father. But just the fact of how the father was kind of left out the picture. I, in order to go see my daughter be born, I had to take, at that time, you had to take a Lamont's class in order to go in. So that meant that people who had money for those type of things could go in and see their children born. The rest of them had to sit out in the waiting room, you know? So, so these are the things that I started to realize as a father, how it impacted me in terms of the love of my own child. So those things then led me to, after my daughter, uh, I took my daughter back. I just didn't want to be in New York no more. And I was sitting one night listening to Bob, Bob Marley, you know, and he was his uh, Rasta Man Positive Vibrations album. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I know, I decided I got to get out of this town. And what I did is I went down to the Port Authority the next day and I, uh, I packed my bags. I went down and I got on a bus to Chicago and I had went to a conference with uh, the Independent Black Institution in the East. So I had kind of met some people while I was down there, but I really didn't know anybody. And I went on down. I wound up living in Chicago for two years. And one day I'm in Chicago and I'm working for this program called the Better Boys Foundation. And what happened was I was, I had the big map of the country, you know, and I was starting to talk about the pioneers and they went from the East Coast and they fought the Indians and climbed the mountains and the snows and all this stuff. And then they wound up in California where they struck gold. So I'm in the middle of the class and all of a sudden I stop. I'm looking at the map. I turn around and look at the kids and say, that's where I got to go next. I got to go west. <laughs> so, so one night I'm sitting in my apartment in Chicago and I watch eight inches of snow drop. And this was on a Sunday. I decided I couldn't live in Chicago, not another winter, because Chicago winters is rough. <laughs> so what I did was I went downtown and they used to have a lot of travel agents. I go into a travel agent and all of a sudden I'm looking at these pamphlets and a woman behind the counter says, excuse me, sir, can I help you? I turn around and I say, yes. She said, what? I said, I want a ticket to California. She said, where? I said, Los Angeles. She said, round trip or one way. I said, one way, I won't be back. <laughs> and what I did was, this was on a Monday. What I did is I came back, called everybody I knew. Anything I can fit in my duffel bag and my suitcase, you can have it in here. And that Wednesday, I was on uh, a plane going to Los Angeles, but I did not know where I was going to stay. Now, I have to, I have to kind of go back a minute. I, I'm not quite sure because I rarely get to tell my story about what has happened to me. You know, yeah. I'm usually talking about other things. Mm -hmm. But what I want to say is that 
I was gifted and blessed with a mother who believed in the power of positive thinking. And she instilled, she started giving me books when I was about 15. The first book she gave me was uh, The Game of Life and How to Play It. Then she gave me Think and Grow Rich. She was into uh, 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 have positive thinking with a peace of mind. So she would get these books, and, and I'm not quite sure she read them all that tough. But she would give them to me later, and I started to really believe in that. That's why a lot of the things that started happening in my life didn't really surprise me, okay? And, 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 and that just wonderful things happen. But at the same time, and the reason why I wanted to go back into that is because when I got on the bus to Chicago, I didn't know where I was really going to wind up. And I sat on the bus and I asked something from life. And I asked life to show me your secrets. And therefore, then I began this trip going cross country. But all the time that I started traveling, life began to show me its secrets in terms of people, places, and things. How people would talk to me. How people would tell me about stuff. And 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 who they were and how they grew up and all of these other things and stuff like that. And so therefore I started to learn a lot about the human condition and how many people were all caught up in mostly the same thing. We didn't know what we was doing, where we was going, and we were just stumbling through life. But what happened is by the time I get to California, I couldn't find a place to stay because I usually try to start off in YMCA because they're usually centrally located in the city. Then you can learn the city from there. But they had no rooms or nothing. And I wound up at a motel in Los Angeles and by the airport. And what happened was when I went through, you know, when you go to these little motel, there's always a cocktail lounge. So I'm going through the cocktail lounge and I heard the BG sing the record, Staying Alive. Okay. I said, okay, this is what this place is going to be like, staying alive. And so what happened is that I started to, you know, like connect with different people while I was in Los Angeles. But one night I'm walking down the street and I saw a gentleman, you know, that I, 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 I recognized him from a, a fair I had worked at in Chicago and he was a jeweler. And so, you know, I stopped him. We got to talk and whatnot. And so he said, you know, I told him I'm looking for a job, this, that, and the other. And he said, well, why don't, you, why don't you come work with us? And the name of the place was the Gold Connection. So when I got to Los Angeles, I discovered gold too. And so I worked with those brothers for a while. Then I wound up in Oakland, loved Oakland. They called that New York on the West Coast. I loved it, culture, everything. But what happened is I went to uh, 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 a conference that was put on uh, by the um, National Black Social Workers Association or whatever they call themselves. And New York had a suite up in there and I went to this party at this suite and when I went to the party, New York they were doing the dance to freak. <laughs> but when I saw them freaking, <laughs> I went back and told my guys I got to go back to New York because they're freaking in New York and I'm going back home. <laughs> and I wound up staying in California for another two, three weeks. Then I came on back to New York. And that's when 
another journey started because again, too, I reunited with my daughter. Uh, and, and, and there was just a lot of things that started to happen to me. So, so in that, you know, it took me to, to various jobs mm-hmm. and, um, working like I, I worked at, um, Covenant House, which is for the runaways under 21 program. Mm-hmm. And when I started working with that, cause these were mostly street kids or kids that ran away and wound up at the Port Authority at that time. 42nd Street was the red light district. Mm. So they had pawn shops and all kind of stuff going on. So these kids were being, you know, taken off on a lot of levels mm-hmm. because they, it was about survival. Mm. So they would wind up at this covenant house. So what I discovered was these were kids that were coming in hopeless. So they needed to understand that life was preparing them for great things. Because if you read the life, my, remember my mother used to, to to give me stories about great people. Mm-hmm. So, and if you read the story of great people, always their life was a turmoil. And afterwards, that's what led them to be great. So I would start telling these kids that they were they were in line to be great people. This is why the experiences. But what I discovered was I started looking up their signs. So I started to get into astrology and then I would go in there and somebody would start acting out and I said, what's your sign? And then when they told me, then I'd start giving them a litany of the thing that their sign always was good for, never negative. Hey, Walter, hold on. (laughs) So, so Norm, it's interesting that you you went there because, and I love listening to you, you share this story and I'm really glad that this is an opportunity for you to express you know, and share that, right? Because those of us who do the work to help others, oftentimes we we don't tell our story. We don't talk about yes. ourselves. Yes. Uh, but one of the things that you know, you're my go-to person when it comes to astrology. And um, on every person that I interview here, I ask them, what is their sign? So uh-huh. you got to answer that question. What is your sign? Well, I'm a Virgo. Okay. I was born the ninth month, the ninth day. Okay. okay. And in the 1949th year. Okay. So I call myself 9949. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but, the, but, the, but the reality is that because uh, my sun sign is Virgo, mm-hmm. um, my moon is in Aries. So mm-hmm. I think I want to be a leader. Mm-hmm. And then mostly I am dominated by Libra. Mm. Okay. So my rising sign is Libra. I got all kinds of stuff in Libra, mm-hmm. my Venus, so all these things. Mm-hmm. So, so, so they call Libras the, the, uh, diplomats of the Zodiac. Mm-hmm. So I can be very, very social, but the Virgo makes me a kind of inverted type of person. Mm-hmm. So I can go into a crowd and be by myself mm-hmm. without any problem and stuff like that. But the thing is that again, to being able to manage the scales mm-hmm. and become very difficult. Mm. Because sometimes stuff starts showing up and I can't even figure out where that's coming from, mm-hmm. you know, and see, and in, in, in the, in the relationships that I have developed, the Libra has been very instrumental because Virgo, the key word is I analyze. Mm. But what I had to learn was that there's a difference between analyzing and criticizing. Mm. 
And mm-hmm. sometimes we call ourselves analyzing somebody or something, and we're really criticizing. Yeah. So I had to learn how to filter it through the Libra process and give it to people in a way that would not be offensive. Mm. You see? And so all of these things that have gone down have helped me to be able to temper my ability to, to communicate with others. All right. And not <clears throat> criticize. Walter, so you mentioned something earlier along your journey and you know, after you had decided to stay home, you said you were struggling with depression. You know, this conversation and just healing is focusing on the healing journey of survivors of, of sexual yes. harm, right? And so, yes. you know, I don't want you to talk about your experience of sexual harm, but like some of the ways that you healed from that, right? Like, because my assumption was that like, the depression might have been connected to that. Honestly, we know because another yes. point of this podcast is really to to capture the intersectionality of the experience of sexual harm within the context of a system that also represents many forms of oppression, whether it's racism, sexism, you know what I mean? And so we are experiencing harm interpersonally, individually, and then we have systems that are causing harm. So I don't want to say that the depression was was a direct was only related to sexual harm. But like if you could you talk a little bit about like some of the ways that you were impacted by your harm and some of the ways that your identity may have influenced your access to the support and the healing that you needed to heal from the harm that you experienced. Well, you know, I find that in our community, um, situations that, that really, especially for males around sexual harm that might have been done is very kept very secret and very private because the question is, why me? Why did they choose me to do whatever or whatever went down here? And so what happens is that in this process, it becomes a blaming, okay? Or at least let me just speak from my own experiences. What happened was, all of the things that would happen to me, I connected it back to something that might have been done to me. So therefore, that in itself made me feel I was unworthy. And more than just being unworthy, because that took an intellectual leap to get to unworthy, I felt that I was defective. Something was wrong here. Okay, and I was good. And trust me, all the positive thinking in the world did not remove that feeling that there was something wrong. When it came time for me to take on a position of leadership, to become a supervisor, those things I never wanted because I did not want to scrutiny. I didn't want people to be able to look and start analyzing me on another level. So how that impacted my uh, 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 being able to evolve um, uh, business-wise or, 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 or in an economic level, okay? Then let's connect the fact that how the substance abuse affected all of this, okay? 
because see, remember, um, it started as a self-medication, but then it turned into something else where it trapped me in a world of seeking out this so-called feeling that would make me feel at peace with myself. And in that, the world of substance abuse creates a dynamic that for that, whatever it is, you know, they have a saying that says, show me what a person gets high on and I'll show you the feeling they're looking for. Okay? Not only looking for, but searching for. So when you take that into account, all drugs give you a different feeling. Heroin gives you a different feeling from marijuana, okay, which gives you a different feeling from cocaine, which gives you a different feeling from crack, which gives you a different feeling than some people like pills and sniffing glue, all that other stuff. But it's a feeling they get once they take on this substance within themselves. And that's what they're actually searching for. But what I have discovered was it all for me was actually a search for love. And that feeling that I got when I indulged, even if it was only temporary, was a feeling of love. Mm. Okay? It just didn't last long. Walter, could you say more about that? Because that's very profound. And yes. I don't want that to go over their heads. And I'm I'm sure that somebody's going to be listening to this and they might be yes. in that space. And what yes. is that? What does that feeling of love feel like? Well, you see, what happens is that we live in a world and we live around people who, by definition, we are taught are not only supposed to love us, but they're supposed to know how to love us. And what happens is we really find that they don't. Most of the time, they may not know all of their own self. And so therefore, whatever dysfunction or whatever has happened in their life creates a way in which they deal with us. My father was an introvert, even though he was very autistic, but he had to work hard. So what happened was he was very aloof. And I'm not blaming him for anything, mind you, because, you know, hey, he was just who he was was. He was the oldest son of six children. And he had a lot of responsibility, these brothers and sisters and his mother. But what I'm saying is, he would sit and listen to, to uh, Dinah Washington and Sarah Vaughn and drink his J&B and just to sit there. And my father wasn't a talker. So here I was a talker and he didn't talk to me. So I thought he, it was because he didn't like me. I thought I did not live up to who he wanted me to be. Mm. So therefore, well, you don't like me, I don't like you either. Mm -hmm. and, and the tragedy was that most of our relationship was built upon a misunderstanding. Mm. Now, let me go back to the substance abuse thing mm. and how that substance abuse will play itself out in your own self-doubts about yourself. So when you get this so-called feeling, you think you've arrived somewhere. But when the, when, the, when the feeling, and more important, when the money runs out for the search for the feeling, mm -hmm. 
That's when the problems begin. Because what happens is you run into a world of people who use your chase for the feeling against you mm-hmm. by having you sometimes work for it. Mm-hmm. I think that's a that's that's a a, mm-hmm. a better way to put put it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you want to get high, they'll get you high, but this is what you have to do. Yeah. Okay. So in that process, you go about that, but at the same time, now along with the good feeling comes a sense of being degraded. Yeah. That then. These two feelings and the degradation clashed. And as they clash within yourself, you begin to kind of, um, I'll say it nicely, dislike yourself. Mm -hmm. And so you do things that are kind of self-destructive. And so therefore you're caught in this circle of, of destruction and all these other things that you're doing in terms of your behavior that'll lead you, as they say, in, in the 12-step program, jail's institution of death, mm. okay? But again, too, it's always a search. The feeling that you're searching for is love. Mm. That's the hole that's missing. Mm-hmm. And for in those moments, you get that feeling of elation, whatever form it might take. And in that, you almost get to where you want to be. It's just that it doesn't last. Mm. And you come down and the search begins again. Wow. Wow. So, wow. so hey, so. Yeah. So, that, you know. Mm, go ahead. Wow, Walter. So, you know, you have lived a lot. I had a lot of experiences, and and it's not just associated with with your age, right? It's just mm-hmm. the 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 way that you allowed yourself to flow, to to respond to the messages, the calling, yeah. the pushing and the pulling of life, and and leading you in different places. Um, and you you've had a wealth of experiences, and that's something that you know has really been important and critical for me and our relationship because you're so able to pull from those those experiences in ways that you can add some type of wisdom, some type of insight and perspective to your relationships and help other people start to pick up on some of the things that you've learned in ways that has helped me. And so I want to kind of like, you know, move a little forward because I know now, right, your work has been over the last probably what, how long have you you know, I will tell us a little bit about that, but I want you to tell us about Community Fathers, right? Because like, this is the first time I heard about the story of you. I didn't know you raised your daughter alone for so long. You know, you were stay home dad. But, you know, I'm just thinking about that, how that connected with you, the lessons you learned from just watching her develop that you said just helped you understand so many different things about people, the experience you had of her being around so many men and not getting that feminine energy um, that she she needed for her to be balanced. And now you have this organization that you started. How long ago did you start community? Oh Fathers? my God. We've been, I would say maybe 18, 20 years now. Okay. So tell okay. us tell the audience about community fathers 
and how your experience of harm, specifically sexual harm, how did that influence that in addition to all of the things that you shared, like your decision to do that work? And then tell us about Community Fathers. Well, well, you know, it's interesting the way you worded that because it wasn't like I decided to do that work. I was actually led to that work. Okay, I had been in human service for quite some time. Mm -hmm. But what happened was I was working at a program that um, uh, another program in the community had gotten money for a grant, a fatherhood initiative, mm -hmm. and they got money to start a father's program, but they couldn't get any fathers to come. So they came over to the program that I was working for, and the two uh, of us that were working there, two guys, um, uh, 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 me and this other Caucasian fellow, they asked us to come there so that they could start the father's group because they figured that, you know, we'd be able to do it. But the thing that I had, number one, I lived in the community. And because of my association with 12-step programs, I knew where fathers were. Okay. So I go out and I, I bring in some people from the support groups that I've been in. And we, you know, I let them know we, we're here to do this father thing. And they pay in for us to eat. We can order what we want and all this stuff. So we eat Chinese food one week and Italian food the next. So we were just enjoying ourselves. But one thing about people in recovery, and especially if they've been in recovery and uh, rehabs or, or, or all those type of things and stuff like that, you know how to be in a group. And you know how to talk. And so we were already all able to understand the nature of what a group was. And the fact is that as fathers, this was something different. And what happened was we started to talk about fathering and how our experiences, especially from our own fathers, because many of the people that were there did not have their own father in their life. So there was a lot of you know, anger, and resentment. And you know, it's really interesting because at first it was the father wasn't this, he wasn't that, he wasn't the other. And you know, and the mother was like a, a god, you know, because they had brought into the myth, she was a mother and a father to me and all that. So, so what happened? You know, so a lot of that was, you know, was there. And that was to be expected. But one time there was a young fellow, I'll never forget him, a little young Puerto Rican cat. And he came to the group and whatnot, you know. Well, this cat started to say, well, I don't know about nobody else, but my mother was a whore. And this cat started talking about mm. his mother mm. on levels and how she used to lock him out the house so she could have men and all of this stuff go down. It shifted everything in the group. And then the men started to relate and reveal how their mother's behavior and them watching it affected them. Turned the whole group around. Wow. And not only did it turn the group around, but it helped us to see things from a level that might not ever have been looked at before. Yes. Because society teaches you to blame the father. He's not there. He's absent. He's deadbeat. He's this, that, and the other. Yes. But as the focus started talking about being left behind, mm. 
And what was that like? Mm. It brought out some other issues that would have never, the group took off like a jet. Okay. And in fact, we really began to really run this thing ourselves. Okay. So what happened was this other, uh, uh, the other people, they, they, they ran out of funds. So the program he was working for, they was iffy about creating a program again because then they felt they might have paid for it. So we went over to this church. We went over to this African-American church, which was the oldest African-American church in the community. And what happened was we asked them if we could have space in there to hold the father's group. Well, the other program then saw that going down so we was going independent. So now they found space for us and all this stuff. But what happened was that after a while, what we discovered is not only were we making some powerful breakthroughs in terms of understanding ourselves. I mean, it a lot. We started to come up with a collective fatherhood amongst ourselves where we started talking about being a father. What did we need? And in order for us to function, because we look around and there's all these other programs for everybody else, but what about us? So we started talking about the different types of programs we needed to be able to service ourselves. Hmm. The biggest problem for us was the court thing. Going to family court was excruciating because you know when you went there, they was going to take everything you had and it was going to make you feel like whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. So what we started to doing is going to court with people and being able to stand with them because you got all these lawyers and child protective and all these other people on one side and you're standing there on the other by yourself. So most of the time, because in your heart, you, you're not trying to protest anything to do with your child, but they're making you out to be almost like a, some kind of slimy criminal. And you're, you're, you're starting to react to this. So of course you talk too loud or you talk with bass and they say, Oh, needs super. When he's with kids, he needs supervised visitation. Okay. Then maybe he needs anger management. And also they start slapping you with all of this stuff. And then they're telling you like, they're afraid for you to be alone with your own child. What's going on here? And just the whole concept of, of visitation. I'm a father. I'm not a visitor. But at any rate, let me just say, this was what turned our program around altogether. There was one judge that was so ruthless towards fathers. We found out later they had come out of the district attorney's office for domestic violence. And they were the judge and they would do things to fathers that really wasn't sometimes borderline illegal. Okay. They say, well, we're not going to sign you a lawyer unless you can go and get three quotes and you can't afford it. We're entitled to that because economically this, we can't afford it. So why have me running around and all that? But anyway, we took the judge upon charges. And uh, the ruling board of, of the of the judges put a sanction on the judge. The only thing more that they would have done was remove the judge from the bench. 
You better believe that the, the, the family court became father friendly then. Okay? But what we realized, we had power, collective power together, that we could start making some changes that would benefit us and our relationship with our children. Walter, really quickly, I want to I want to ask you a question. Were these fathers yeah. predominantly uh, men of color? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. were they men of color? Yeah. Well, I, actually, I'd say uh, ninety five percent were men of color. Yeah. You know, and I I include Hispanics in that. Mm -hmm. Okay, but um, but the other part was Caucasians, mostly right. poor. But five, yeah, right. Yeah. So it was like yeah. Five percent was right. There was the socioeconomic. And yes. then there was race as a yes. factor that, right? Yes. And then we know that this historical narrative around black and brown men as fathers. Come on. Right? And how they view us. Walter, I want to I touch on something quickly, too, because, you know, a big part of my healing journey was to get to a place where I felt free to talk about my mother wounds. And the mother wound is something that you know, to this day, I struggle with, right? And in the way that it shows up and in interaction with other, you know, women, uh, women that I've dated and been in a relationship with, that I've worked with. And it, and it really ties in with what you're saying. So like, what I realized is that until I started to, to look at that mother wound, the harm and the hurt that I experienced as a result of my relationship with my mother who had all of her, her trauma, right? So part of it is not only just like, you know, we can we can bash dad because in too many instances, dad leaves the picture, right? Mm -hmm. Mom stays. And so it's like, right. mom stays, so she's more valuable. But then there's this like this belief that, you know, mom has to be this angel and she's a human being too. And she has all her experiences. She's trying to handle her trauma. And then you factor in, to your point, socioeconomic status, you factor in race and the things that she's gone through, she's not really in a space of healing, right? So unfortunately, hurt people hurt people. You get the experience to hurt at the hands of your mom, but you're unable to express that. And what right. I realized is that for so many years, right, I was projecting and I was displacing my anger towards my mother onto other women. It was such a liberating space for me to be in when I understood and I felt like I could talk about the harm that my mother, that I experienced as a result of my mother, not blaming, right? Yeah. But at first I had to be angry, right? Mm -hmm. At first I had to be angry and I had to lash out and I had to say all the bad things that I felt about my mother that I wasn't able to say in a way that was cathartic for me. You know, and then I was able to start to think in a more compassionate way, right? And consider some of the things that I remember her telling me she had experienced that caused her harm. Man, that was such a critical shift in, in my healing journey. And it's also something that I've found that I've struggled with in traditional spaces that men are healing in together, because too many of the many of the men that I that are in these spaces with me have talked about the harm that they experienced from their dad. And I think it's legitimate, right? It's like yes. dad didn't show up for my game. And, yes. and, and unfortunately, in too many instances, it was dad was abusive to mom, right? Mm -hmm. Dad was abusive yes. to me. I watched my dad abuse my mom, right? So there's mm -hmm. legitimate anger and rage towards dad, right? And then dad is not 
And then dad is not coupling that abuse with the nurturing of mom. So mom, right, mom will abuse, mom may be abusive and mean and say things that are hurtful to you, right, intentionally because she's upset, but also mom is cooking your dinner. You know what I mean? Mom may do something. So it's like really conflicting in that case with dad. It's just like, well, dad's not doing the nurturing stuff, but he's causing harm. So yes, the rage is legitimate. And I feel like in those spaces with groups, when we start talking about this, like I always felt like an anomaly because I'm like, y'all got daddy wounds. I got mommy wounds. Could you talk a little bit about that? And I kind of want to like move too, because I think, I think Walter, this is, you know, as we think about other survivors of sexual harm, we know that too often, like the majority of times, the harm is, is, it comes from other men. But we also know that there's, especially as black men, I was just reading an article um, by Dr. Curry talking about the, the disproportionate rate of men who experience harm, sexual harm specifically at the hands of women that we don't often talk about. And specifically in black and brown communities where, you know, our sexual prowess is viewed as a part of our identity. It's, we're considered to be hyposexual. We're considered to be hypermasculine. So even boys who are subjected to sexual harm at the hands of women are not viewed as vulnerable, as not viewed as victims of a, a crime to the extent that, you know, we don't even feel like we can express that. And then the way that we've internalized it in our communities, it becomes like a badge of honor. And I remember like nearly all of my friends, us together talking about our first experiences of sex with older women, oftentimes friends of my mother, you know, they have a fish fry, they'd be drinking or playing cards, and then something happens or an older babysitter, something happens. And, and we kind of laughed it off. But I know and understand then and definitely now that there was so much hurt. There was so much harm that we experienced. But yeah, so yeah, I, I want you to like share some of that, the work that you're doing currently with men, with, uh, with community fathers, you know, to our listeners and like the, the connection between that, the connection between fatherhood. And this is the last thing I'll say uh, about the fatherhood connection and sexual harm. So one of the things that I personally struggle with as a survivor of sexual abuse, childhood sexual abuse, right? Because the thing that it did, it, it made me question my sexual orientation. It made me question my, my manhood. It made me feel, like you said earlier, defective, right? And then there were all of these myths because I've literally been in relationships with women. When they hear about my story, my experience, they start to question whether I'm safe to be around their child. And so we get all of these messages, like something happened to you, sexual harm, that you might be prone to harm someone else. And when I became a father, those thoughts entered into my mind in ways that I didn't even know. Like, am I gonna, like, and it was like, it didn't, you know, it's like, where did, how did I, how did I allow these things to like rent space in my mind and my body to have these thoughts at this point? So I think it's a really important connection as it, as it relates to experience of sexual harm and yes. being a father, especially being a father of two boys. I'm a father of two boys. But if, you know, let, let me, cause, you know, when you're talking about it, you're really given the overview of the whole experience, okay? What I want to do is I want to kind of go back a little to the beginning parts of this, okay? Because when you talk about the mother womb and stuff like that, 
because that's the circle where it begins to comes out. What I want to say is that women are presented to us as the bastions of love. They're associated with love and caring and all these other things. But if life has caused something else to happen to them, then they have a difficulty in responding and giving love. So what we find is that when a mother does not give you the love you need, what you begin to do is it makes you internalize your sense of unworthiness to be loved, okay? However it's coming across. And sometimes it doesn't come across personally. It comes across as she has a favorite in the family. And that one gets all the attention. That one is never wrong. That one is whatever. And everybody else is, is the children of a lesser God. So what happens is that our whole concept of love gets shifted. So instead of now looking for love in a way that will nourish us, we go out and find people who we begin to love them the way we felt love was missing in our mother's life. So, for instance, if she had a, a husband that beat her and used her and he didn't hardly work and whatever, 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 we become this, this workhorse. We show up for our family. We're there for them all the time. And this way, we begin to superimpose our concept on what a woman wants from love on another woman who may not want none of that. I'm going to give you an example of this because I think it's critical to understand this point. When I was in college, I was early married, and I met this woman. She went to the college with us and everything like that. But she was talking about this boyfriend that she had, she was married and had kids. But she always talked about this boyfriend she had. And the reason he always stayed in my mind, because she called him a boyfriend with one testicle. <laughs> we could never get past that one testicle, okay? She said he only has one testicle, but I love him, okay? So one day, I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a young married guy. So what I wanted to know was, what was happening that this man, and she always spoke about her husband, good father, good husband, good whatever, whatever. But I asked her, why is it you chase the one testicle and this man is doing everything? <laughs> she told me, she said, well, the reason why is because he grew up with an absentee father. And therefore, what happened was, he became all the things that his mother and his sister would have wanted out of a man. He was a hard worker. He came home every night. He was there. She said he always watched TV and drank beer. 
But she said, but I want to go out. I want to go to the theater. I want to be in the world. And my other guy does that for me. She said, my husband would be perfect for his mother and his sister. But he's not perfect for me. Bingo. So what I say in that aspect is how we take and we begin to treat these women in our lives like we'd have thought our mothers should have been treated or how we could have saved them. So we saved this other one. That's why so many men wind up with women with broken wings and they be with them until they get healed and they fly off and you're left alone. But a lot of this goes back to the story of love. And because love is not discussed in our community, we don't see how love is affecting us. We don't talk about, we talk about being hurt, but we don't talk about being unloved. And if I've been unloved, when I find somebody who seems to love me, well, all I want to do is hold on to them. But after a while, that is not enough. And therefore, we then start this little separation piece. Then we start criticizing each other because before all my jokes were funny and lovely. And now I'm starting to be an SOB. So when did this start? Okay. And so therefore, in her life, not having the love she needed by the law of attraction, two unloved people got together. This is not rocket science happening here. Uh, uh, Walter. Yes. Share a little light on like how you see love. Just just thinking about people who have different definitions and understandings yes. of love. How do you, how do you see it? Well, love is the greatest part of who we are. Let me go to the concept that God is love. And we are children of God. Okay? No matter who we are, no matter where we are. So basically, by nature, we come with love. When you look at a little child, they got more love than you could shake a stick at. But what happens is we live in a world that begins to focus our attention on lovelessness or on things that we do to cause somebody else to be justified in not loving us. Okay? You take a parent. Okay? You do something wrong and all of a sudden they'll stop speaking to you. So you as a child feel like they took their love back from you. And therefore, you don't even understand how to get it back except to do what they want. Mm -hmm. This is why I'm saying about how we learn not to say nothing until we're angry. Yeah. Because we're not taught the language of how to talk to one another in loving manners. Mm -hmm. If we want somebody to do what we want, we start getting into their stuff. Mm -hmm. And we don't waste no time pointing out every defect they got 
to let them know why we're right and they're wrong in the first place. Mm. But the reality is that in that process, we have learned, and I'm saying this from not only just our parents, but remember, we have a collective society that teach us that love is a weakness mm. and not a power or a strength. I'll tell you something happened to me recently. I'm sitting in the barbershop and I hear these guys talking about the Game of Thrones. So I said, oh my God, sounded like a good show. I go over to Walmart, I got a whole series, okay? Mm -hmm. I, I get home. <laughs> I put on the first disc, the first five minutes, I said, hell no, I can't watch this. The barbarism, the, the treachery, all of these things I'm watching, and they're justifying it with leadership. Mm. I said to myself, I can't put this in my mind. But I also remembered that this is what they learned from Shakespeare. Mm. When you go back to the Shakespeare plays, King Lear, Henry, Macbeth, uh, 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 all these Hamlet, to be or not to be, kill or not to kill, the treachery, Lady Macbeth, all of this stuff. All is fair and love and war. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they were saying that fear will conquer nations will give you power, and that's what you have to do for others to fear you, not love you. Right. So they're putting into the consciousness of a planet. And then we're watching it played out all around the world. Yeah. Okay? But again, too, it is the fact is that they have made us believe that love is something that we should maybe avoid or mm -hmm. don't love too much mm -hmm. or you know if you do they're gonna destroy you with your own love mm -hmm. so therefore what happens is we're not taught anywhere how to love you even go to church and they start talking about this god that's damnation and all this other stuff mm -hmm. and we get scared of god this is interesting. I'm thinking about, you know, you know, we have a mutual friend, Dr. Bruce Pennell, yes. uh, Dr. Love. He talks about love yes. scarcity. He talks about love scarcity. Yes. And I'm thinking about, you know, what you're saying as it relates to love and your description and definition of love. And I'm thinking about it as it relates to people who survive sexual harm, specifically yes. men. Right. Yes. Right. That that experience causes you to question if you're worthy of love. Right. And it also also it can cause you to not feel safe, right? Because in some instances, people who quote unquote love you are the ones who harm you. Yes. And the way that they breach your boundaries, they hurt you in a deep, visceral way through this act. And they are the people who are representing the images, the ideas, the you know, the beliefs about who should be loving you, right? And I'm wondering how that shows up. Like, how does that influence your capacity to love and to feel that you're worthy and deserving of love? Well, you see, 
this is one of the things that we started to relate to in our support group. Okay. We related to the fact that everybody here deserves love. Okay. So let's, let's get that straight. So if that's the case, then when we deal with one another, we deal with them in a loving and caring way. Okay. I don't need nobody to start psychoanalyzing somebody else when your life is just as crazy as it can be anyway. So stop it. But right away, we're going to start pointing out to other people what they did wrong, but we don't do it in a loving way. We do it from an analytical way. You see, the education system is very good at teaching us how to analyze this and how to look at that and how to point this out and all this stuff. But it never teaches us how to love one another. So what we have to do is start to create this environment. Love is a healer. Okay. If we want to, <coughs> want to get healed from a lot of these traumas, love is the answer. You know, uh, Ashford and Simpson had a record a long time ago, found the cure. And there was a refrain in there, oh, love can fix it. Okay. And this is the deal. And we've got to start to let people understand that love is the answer, okay? Because with love comes forgiveness. Once we can get there, we can give forgive people for what they've done to us because we know they didn't know what they were doing anyway. They weren't the, the, the icons. Of, of how to raise children or treat children. They were people struggling through their own things that happened in their own experiences. So they didn't have that equipment. They were taught to work hard and, and get on with it. Okay. And so therefore they felt, and this went back for us as people of color, where they had to make us strong enough to take these weapons and everything else and get up and get back into the field. So therefore, we didn't have time to love. What happened when, when we came over on the slave ship with our woman that was on the other side of the ship who was in chains and she saw us as powerless to help her and we were royalty from tribes and shit. What did we feel? So it made us feel unworthy. So therefore, we lived in a world and a society that kept people from color of economic advancement, of political advancement, and it taught the other poor ones that they were better than these ones. And therefore, even though they were powerless, they didn't know it. So therefore, what happened is we became those lowest of the rung, unable to provide, unable to give our children what the desires of our heart to give them were. And then because we didn't, we were looked at as failures. Mm -hmm. So what is worse for us in terms of the things that already happened when we've been abused sexually or whatever way we've been abused, and then we have people that look at us through the eyes of disappointment. Right. Well, this is, this is, well, you're going to, because one of the things that we've already discussed in the previous conversations we have for the podcast 
and you know as well as I do, we talk about this quite quite a bit, right? Is comes to getting the support that you you need to heal, right? The love, right? When you go to organizations or you go even to a therapist or, you know, and that's why we made this podcast, uh, the way that we did the concept is right, is that healing is can be many things. It doesn't have to be in a clinical therapeutic setting, right? Because what you're saying makes so much sense that healing is really being able to connect with someone who has the capacity to love you yes. and see beyond all of the things that society has told you you are, that you might even act in accordance with because you've internalized it in that space, yes. the stuff that they have learned and had to unlearn, but they can see you in a spirit of love with an energy and love in a way that allows that healing process to happen. And it's just so unfortunate that because we see healing in this very narrow way, especially in the Western world, you know, the medical model, the, the clinical model, the therapeutic model, the psychological, it's like it has to happen in these very narrow spaces, right? And ways that unfortunately, because those spaces have been dominated by this historical narrative, especially when it comes to black and brown men, as us not being one, deserving of love, us being less than, inferior, us being not susceptible to harm or being vulnerable because there's a belief that we can withstand pain to the extent that nobody else can, right? There's medical articles and people have written extensively about this belief that Black people can uh, experience, uh, tolerate more pain than others. And so they're less likely to give us pain medication. Like all of this stuff is documented. And so now you turn into this space and you're in a place of hurt. You're in a pace of pain, of trauma because of your sexual harm. And you're not greeted. The last thing that you're greeted with is love. You're greeted with judgment. You're greeted with criticism. You're greeted with bias. You're greeted with racism. You're greeted with sexism. Because even if you're not a person of color, part of the reason why this work is so hard to support male survivors is because there's an overall message that men are not vulnerable and susceptible to harm. But it's Mm -hmm. even more intensified with the experience of black men and brown men because you have these other factors. And so, I mean, I love what you're saying because what it does is it opens us up to see that, you know, healing can happen in spaces that are loving, like you're doing in your group with community fathers, like you've always done. Healing can happen, you know, in spaces that it doesn't require a degree or any type of credential. It just requires this openness and this willingness to create a space of love. Can I say something? Because you're talking about, really, that's what has to be created. One of the things that were created in Community Fathers was anybody that entered there was a part of the no matter what club. We're going to love you no matter what. Okay? And this is the dynamic that we began to show one another that we, this is a place where you can come to where you're accepted. We used to call them, our groups, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, because by saying that, it uplifted people to realize that maybe their scars was for a purpose 
so that they could help somebody else and to lift up someone else. Nothing is for nothing in this life. I told you at the beginning, I asked life to show me your secrets. And one of the secrets that it showed me was that we are here to help one another. We're not alone. Yeah. And that therefore, all of these things that they try to keep us as separate from one another, they don't really exist. You know, as in the matrix, they say it's a construct, mm -hmm. but it's not a reality. Mm -hmm. But they try to make us believe that these behaviors are the reality. But what happens when we create areas where we, the one of the things that made us unique and uh, uh, the way in which we did things is because we created the program. Mm -hmm. We didn't ask no social workers to come in and tell us what, 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 what subjects we needed to study, what we needed to do, and all this stuff. We did stuff because we felt this is what we thought was the best thing for us to do. And not only that, this is the way. Because you know that book that talks about the revolution will not be funded. Okay? And it talks about the funding industrial yeah. complex. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of times have to do funds that have outcomes designed by other people. Mm -hmm. And when in order to get the money, we've got to produce this. They're manipulating how our community gets information and what what should happen with the information. And how our community should heal, right? right. So it takes away self-determination. This is the deal. Right. And it comes so with we the gotta proceeding. do it. Yes. We gotta do it ourselves. This is why we were always very particular about taking in money. Because right. who controlled your money controlled your program. So mm -hmm. we had to sift through that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This becomes Walter, important for us. Walter, you know, we could talk all day. And 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 we need to do this just again on a right. strength of because I want to hear like your whole story, your whole journey. Hey. And, and I'm always saying that we need to capture these stories, you know, especially from our elders, right? And so these mm -hmm. stories can be here for generations to come. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for all that you shared about your journey and just all of the wisdom. And I'm so glad that this is gonna be documented and captured and shared um, with other people so they can learn. Um, and they have access to you like the way that I've been so fortunate to have access to you. Um, and so I wanna ask you like one of the last question, you know, just thinking about survivors, uh, male survivors of sexual harm out there or family members who are supporting male survivors of sexual harm right. out there. What are some, what, you know, what are a few words of encouragement or hope or even insight that you could offer to them listening? If somebody's out there right now dealing with those feelings of, of love scarcity, not feeling worthy because of that sexual harm, dealing with many of the things that you're talking about, what would you offer them? Well, I would offer them to number one, realize that they're worthy of love and that who they are in essence is love. And that it's nothing they have to fight or battle for. It's theirs by divine right. And when they recognize that and they begin to live out of that concept, what they will begin to do is trapped in their life people who are loving and caring like themselves. We have to understand what the law of attraction means 
and the magnetism of the mind. We are not taught how the mind works. That's why we stumble through social constructs that are not real and that there's a hidden language that others are taught to make themselves feel better about themselves and especially at our expense. So what we have to do is that we're all wounded. And the wound is a mark of our own ability to live. It's not a hurt that life put on you, this mark of a uh, 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 distinction that you are somebody that's not right. What it's doing is to show you that maybe in this area is where I can make my greatest contribution when I stop looking at myself through just the pain, but I look at myself through the healing of loving myself. Until I began to love my own self, nothing worked. Nothing worked. And I'm telling you, when I discovered the Walter, that's who I've been looking for in every drug, in every person, and everything else that I chased. But I was looking everywhere except me. When they talk about finding, looking for love in all the wrong places, of course. Because if I don't go in and look at me and see who I am and what I have to offer, I'm always going to act as if I have a disability. And my disability is in love and stuff like that. So I just want to make sure that people understand that, hey, we, you know, there's two people on the earth. They say the sons and daughters of God and the sons and daughters of men. So you got to choose who you want to be a part of. And I believe that we are the sons and daughters of God who came back to heal a painfully sick world. That's why we came. And we're here just for this purpose at this time. You know, when they say we are the ones we've been waiting for, we are, but we have to heal ourselves in order to go out here and do, and do the healing work that our, 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 our families, our, our loved ones, our communities, and our world needs. Wow. So that's where I'm at, mother. Yes, yes, and yes. And I know that to be so true. It is a journey I'm on now, you know, of, of really getting to a place of self-love. Yes. And not feeling like I need to fight and earn other people's love. I'm sure that message is going to resonate with a lot of folks out there who need to hear that. Um, because I agree with you, there is a love scarcity. And, yes. you know, we're trying to self-medicate in a lot of ways to avoid dealing with those feelings um, that we're unworthy of love. But the first love starts with self-love. And I appreciate you for sharing that. Um, are there any last things you want to say to any folks? Well, um, I want to just say something to you because I just was so excited by you asking me to be here and to speak and to speak on these subjects mm -hmm. because we're in a very delicate area mm -hmm. and sometimes we find ourselves walking on eggshells, but that's okay. We're here to do the work that needs to be done and I want to commend you. Because ever since I've known you, you have never stopped moving forward in what you believe to be what's needed to heal this world. And you use your own self 
and, 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 and you're, you're very open about it to be able to help other people learn how to be open. You know, they called it polishing the mirror. And sometimes you become this mirror that people can look at and see themselves. So I am just so honored that you've been in my life consistently since the day we met. Okay, so I don't want to go into that story. Okay. <laughs> so, so all I can tell you is uh, I, I, I really want you to know how much I love you and appreciate you. Love you so, too, hey, So let's do what we got to do, all right? Yes, sir. Thank you so much. No pain, no glory. Let me share my story. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Smith, in collaboration with Men Healing, a national nonprofit dedicated to helping provide accessible resources and community for any male or male-identifying survivor of sexual harm. Men Healing's aim is to help heal, inspire, and break isolation for survivors. You can check out our healing events, videos, and other resources at www.menhealing.org. Special shout out to Jordan Masciangelo for helping produce and edit the show. Holla and YOC, the youth organizing collective, for allowing us to use their dope and powerful song, Share Your Story, off their album, The Report Back, The Healing Justice Movement, and all of the unsung brothers and sisters who are working tirelessly to make healing and justice accessible for all. Peace. Thank you.